The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenus to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him by all speech and all knowledge, even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the reeling of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Man, hey, thanks for doing that. Guys, what's up? Good morning. How are we doing? Hey, uh, so if we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm really excited about today as we dive into this sermon series. And I actually feel like this moment is pregnant with the heart of God. God wants to do some really deep things in our church over the course of the next year as we dive into this book. And I want to take a second and I want us to pray together because as we stepped into the nine o'clock, it was a wild service and it felt a bit like a spiritual fistfight. Um, There was just spiritual warfare. There was pushback going on in the room, distractions like crazy. And uh, that actually is... That's par for the course when God's moving. That's actually a mark of his presence, that things get sometimes a little difficult to engage. And so I just want to ask that the presence of God would be welcomed by all of us. I want to ask that our hearts would be attentive. I want to pray that you and me together would be responsive to God's voice and that this would be a moment where his will in the room would be embraced and delighted in and that we would receive him today. So will you guys like seriously engage for just a moment and let's do this work together. Bow your heads and pray with me. Hey, living God, I thank you that you're the one that brought us to this moment today. That you orchestrated the last 2,000 years with the planting of your church and the inspiration of your scripture And that we stand here on the back of those that have gone before us. And we're not standing in this moment because we simply woke up this morning and showed up. But we're here because you brought us here. And your heart is generous. Your heart is full. You want to do things that are of eternal impact in our lives and in this city. So Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence. We love you. We pray for peace. And we pray for sobriety of heart. And we pray that you would help us to practice the kind of reverence that's appropriate to your word, that we would listen. So would you come and we pray against the schemes of the enemy to distract, to thwart, and uh, Lord, we just, we say, here we are. Lord, we want to get after it. We want to do 1 Corinthians together. So come and feed us and teach us and meet us. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. amen. Okay, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be in 1 through 9. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We've got Bibles in the windowsills downstairs. Feel free to take one. Or you can be like one of the guys at the 9 that took like six Bibles with him. Hopefully he's going to read them all. Maybe he's going to distribute them. I'm going to believe the best. All right. Uh, So here we go. Uh, A couple of things on background that are really important. There's some tensions in this book. And the tensions in this book 
actually come out of the history of the city of Corinth. And there's ways in which the history of the city of Corinth is really beautiful when you see what God's doing in the planting of this church. Um, Corinth was originally a city-state of Greece in what's now the southern bit of Greece. And it was planted as a city-state, and it grew to prominence and power, and then it got sideways with Rome when Rome came to power, and it was completely destroyed in 146 BC. Rome just wiped it out, wiped it off the map. And the city lay in ruins. It was sort of uninhabited for almost 100 years. And then Julius Caesar decided that he would start a Roman colony in Corinth. And he sent a bunch of Roman freedmen to go to Corinth and to plant that Roman colony. And as time went by, as the decades unfolded, eventually we get to Acts chapter 18, which is the Apostle Paul's journey to the city of Corinth. And the city that Paul found was really interesting. It was a prosperous city. It was a center of commerce. It was a place of international trade. Um, It was a place where if you were an ambitious merchant, even if you weren't yet a citizen of Rome, you had a chance to make a lot of money and to acquire esteem in the eyes of your fellow Corinthians. And so Paul walks through the cities of Corinth and what what Paul would have found was a city bursting with Greco-Roman culture. It was a city of money and pride. It was a city of religions and temples. It was a city of sexual immorality with tons of prostitution in the city. It was a city that was pretty wild. And in the midst of Paul's journey throughout Corinth, what he would have experienced was the buzz of the city. And the buzz of the city is the culture of the town that has the power to form what people love, what people believe, and what people do. And so think about this for just a second. In the city of Corinth, there were ways in which the people, the citizens of that town and the tourists that would show up were being shaped by the buzz of the city in ways that they could have named and in ways that bypassed their brains and just hit them in their guts. The buzz of the city, the values, the loves, the beliefs of the town would have included the views of Corinth when it came to wisdom and the good life. So what's a good life and how do you live a good life and what is wisdom? It would have affected the way that they thought about power, pride, honor, and shame. It was an honor-shame society. It was a place where you could lose face or you could gain face. It was a town that was deeply connected to lots of ideas about our bodies and our spirits and what our bodies are for and what our spirits are for. And in the midst of all of the things that were shaping the beliefs and the loves and the habits of the citizens of Corinth, I'm not arguing that it was homogenous because you had freemen and you had slaves and you had tourists and you had locals and you had men and you had women and you had different philosophies and different religions and temples. But here's the reality. It was a town where the ways of Corinth created the very essence, the beat, and the vibration of that town. And in the midst of that weird, wild city, the Apostle Paul, who was a tent maker by trade, but the gospel was his life, started telling people about Jesus. And he started with Jews in the city of Corinth at a synagogue there, and he started unpacking from the Old Testament Jewish scriptures the truth of the Messiah. That in the fullness of time, God sent his son Jesus, who died in our place for our sins, who was three days later raised from the dead, And as Paul started reasoning with the Jews and preaching the good news of Jesus, some of them became Christians. They started trusting in Jesus. 
Others rejected the message of the gospel and they turned Paul out and Paul started taking the message of Jesus to the Gentiles of the city, to people deeply entrenched in the ways of Corinth. Paul spent 18 months at least in the city of Corinth preaching the gospel and the spirit of God did something really miraculous. The spirit of God took the preaching of the gospel and he started to cause dead hearts to come to life. And all of a sudden in this wild town, in this town that was a Roman colony, a new colony was birthed, the colony of the kingdom of God, the church of Jesus. And so the people that became Christians in Corinth became this countercultural colony that were called away from the ways of Corinth, the beliefs, the values, the loves, the practices of their city. And they were called to the way of Jesus, to be a outpost of ambassadors in their city, those that were called to be in Corinth, but not of Corinth, a colony of Jesus. And as Paul prepared them and taught them and preached the good news. There were leaders raised up and eventually Paul left. And over time, what started to happen is the people of Corinth started to reflect the reality that it's really difficult to be in the city, but not of the city. It's really hard. It's really hard to be a colony or an outpost of the kingdom of heaven in the midst of a colony of earth. And what started to show up is that the barrier between the colony of Jesus and the colony of Rome known as Corinth was a lot more permeable than the Christians in Corinth tend to realize. And what started to happen is there were Christians in Corinth that started slowly being sucked away from the way of Jesus back into the ways of Corinth. They started to be re-enculturated into the beliefs, the loves, the values, and the habits of their city. And what's going to happen in this letter that's really powerful is Paul is going to remind the Corinthians that their calling in the city of Corinth was to be an outpost of the king, people of Jesus, who didn't follow the ways of Corinth, but followed the way of Christ in the midst of the city as ambassadors that pointed to the king. And what Paul's going to do today in our text, the intro to this book, is he's not just going to give them words of greeting and introduction. What he's going to do is remind them of the very heartbeat or the essence of what it is to follow the way of Christ. This book is going to be full of all kinds of weird contextual things that we're going to have to reckon with. Like, your struggle today is probably not what to do with meat sacrificed to idols. Like, that's not a text that we get from a lot of our members. Help me process this one. But here's what you're going to find. Even in the bits of this book that seem really ancient and really foreign, what's coming through from Paul the spiritual father as he writes to people that he loves deeply in the city of Corinth is the heart of Father God to invite his people out of the ways of the city back to the ways of Jesus so that they can be salt and light in the midst of Corinth. And what we're going to find as we get into this book is that we, like the Corinthians, are called to be a colony of Jesus in Oklahoma City. We're called, though we're from different backgrounds and different ages and all kinds of different stories in this room, we're called to be unified together under the authority of Jesus to bring the salty brightness to Christ to our city. And what we're going to find as we study this book is that you and me, like the Corinthians, as we go out into our city attempting to follow Jesus and walk his way, 
we're not only evangelizing friends and neighbors by telling them the good news of Jesus, but our city is also constantly trying to evangelize us back to its ways. And so as Paul opens up this amazing letter in the first nine verses, what he's doing is laying the foundation for all the instructions that are going to come. He's going to talk about all kinds of stuff in this book. Our relationship with money and our bodies and our marriages and our singleness and sexuality and all kinds of things that we need to hear about. But in the midst of all of his instruction and his correction and his exhortations, the essence of this book is found in the first nine verses. It's the bedrock foundation of the heartbeat of what it is to be an outpost of Jesus. This brings us back to the very heart of Christianity. So take your Bible, follow with me. I want to show you three big ideas that Paul's going to use as the foundation for the rest of this book. In Paul's theology and in the story of God's word, what we find, number one, is that God himself is the prime actor. God is the prime actor. So there were all kinds of people in the city of Corinth outside of the church. There were officials and leaders there were priests and priestesses. There were many temple prostitutes. There were merchants. There were moms. There were dads. And a lot of the people in the city of Corinth had hostility towards the church and would push against the church. A lot of people in the city of Corinth were ambivalent to the church and didn't really care. They were just apathetic. And then there were all kinds of players in the church. What we're going to find is that there were divisions in the church. There were all kinds of different factions. There were people that really loved Paul, and there were people that were really sick of Paul. There were people that were really passionate about spiritual gifts as the end-all, be-all of Christian spirituality. And there were people that were really passionate about strict treatment of our bodies. There were all kinds of beliefs and leaders. There were patrons in the church. And what we're going to find from Jump is that Paul doesn't disregard the importance of our choices or human agency. But for Paul, the prime mover is not the people in the city that either have hostility or apathy towards the church. And the prime shapers of history of the church aren't even the leaders, the patrons, the poor, or the rich in the church. But the prime mover is always for Paul, first and foremost, God. That God is shaping history, and God is moving in his people, and God is speaking, and God is accomplishing everything he wants to accomplish. So take your Bible. Let me show you a few examples of this. First of all, for Paul, God is the source of his authority. God is the source of his, of his authority. Look at verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Called by the will of God to be an apostle. Here's what's happening. Um, 1 Corinthians is not the first letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. That's a little confusing. But there was a letter that we don't have in the canon of Scripture in which Paul had started to give the Corinthians some, some, uh, some correction and some adjustment in some of their thinking and practice. And a lot of the people in the city of Corinth didn't like what Paul had written them, and they were pushing back through correspondence with Paul because they didn't like his teaching. Other people in the church at Corinth didn't like Paul because he wasn't impressive. Okay? They lived in a culture that valued rhetoric and great orators. They wanted somebody that would be impressive and great at speaking, somebody that could hold a room, somebody with a big personality. And we know from Paul's writing, he just wasn't like that. His writing is incredible, but his personal presence just didn't feel compelling. 
And so you have people in the city of Corinth that are like, you know what? This guy, Paul, is not that great. We're offended by what he's written. He's not that impressive. And Paul begins this letter not by tracing out his resume of accomplishments or how smart he is or how gifted he is or how talented he is or by retreating from their pushback by pointing out all the things that he's not good at. Like, you're right. I kind of suck at speaking. Don't listen to me. Instead, what Paul does that's amazing is he actually acknowledges the fact that his authority doesn't start with who he is. His authority is all rooted and grounded in the sovereign calling of God in his life. And this is really important for you and me because in the midst of navigating what it is to be a mom or a dad or a friend or a boss or an employee, as we navigate this world for Paul, here's what he would say to you. Sure, you have Areas in your life where you're really talented and there's beauty. You have talents and you have gifts and there's things that you're really good at and there's things that are beautiful about the way that your creator created you. And Paul would say, you have tons of weaknesses. You have failings and you have sins and you have limitations and you have boundaries. And what Paul would say to you and me today is that the way that we navigate our relationships and our calling in this world starts by recognizing that you have a God who created you and a God who's redeemed you in Jesus and all of your life, the gold and the shadow, the beauty and the brokenness, the limitations and the strengths, all of that stuff belongs to God and it all gets offered back to God as you exercise the unique vocation that he has for you. The second thing we see is not only is God the prime actor through Paul's authority, but he's also the source of the church's identity. I love this. Look at verse 2. Paul says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. The church doesn't belong to Paul. It's God's church. And the church doesn't belong to the wealthy patrons who likely were starting to push back against Paul. Um, In their culture, if you were wealthy and you became a Christian, you would probably open your house and you would have a lot of influence. And what seems to be happening in some of this book is that there's some wealthy people who are not impressed with Paul. They're kind of over Paul and they're trying to use their influence to do a power grab in the church. And what Paul is saying in these opening lines is, hey, you know what? The church doesn't belong to me. The church doesn't belong to our leaders. The church doesn't belong to the wealthy people. The church doesn't belong to the poor people. The church belongs to Jesus. God is the owner of the church, and the church only exists because of the prior activity and agency of God in calling, in choosing, in sending, and in redeeming. And this is really important because this church, we've been here for 17 years, and there's been moments where I certainly as a founding lead pastor have been tempted to take too much of the church as my church. And there's been factions in our church that have at times tried to grab the church as their church. And there's people that have all of their opinions about what the church should be and what the church shouldn't be. And what Paul is saying that's really powerful and really refreshing is that what matters ultimately about the church is that none of us get to vote on what the church actually is. That God has spoken and God has established and God has worked in his son Jesus to call the church his own. This leads to the third thing. Like God is the prime actor also when it comes to our identity. So the corporate identity of the church belongs to God, but also if you're a follower of Jesus, your identity starts with the action of God. Look what happens in verse two. He says to the church of God that is in Corinth. And then like if you write in your Bibles, which I highly recommend, you should circle the next line, especially as we get into how crazy the Corinthians are. Paul calls these Christians those sanctified in Christ. 
called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Okay, listen, this book is going to be an equal opportunity offender. Everybody in the room is going to get mad at Paul and God at some point in the next year. Everybody. We're all going to push back. We're all going to get frustrated. We're all going to get taken to task in areas of disobedience and unbelief and sin and habits that are destructive and are not in step with the way of Jesus. And Paul is going to bring that instruction. He's going to bring that correction. And that stuff is really important. But here's what you got to see. What we're to do as followers of Jesus, as we walk the way of Jesus, doesn't start with us becoming someone that looks like Christ. It starts with the free grace of God that has already declared us his children by his grace in the gospel. The imperatives of a Christian, what it looks like to use our bodies and our hands and our voices to build and to bless instead of to destroy and to curse, the way husbands should relate to wives and wives to husbands and parents to children and bosses to employees. All those, all those imperatives are super important, but they're all rooted and grounded in the indicative that it all starts with not us becoming in our own strength somebody that's more like Jesus, but Jesus working to forgive and to declare us already his. We are his in Jesus. Our identity is his. So in a lot of ways, this book is about Paul writing to the Corinthians to become who they already are, to start living from who they already are, to start acting in accordance with who they already are. And who they already are finds its genesis, not in us trying to self-actualize or be moralistic or get to God, but in what God has already done for us in Jesus. This leads to the next one quickly. For Paul, God is the source of all of his confidence and hope. This is such good news. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is amazing. Okay, the day of the Lord is a really big deal in the Old Testament. It was a day of judgment. The day of the Lord is this idea that carries with it both consummation and blessing and judgment and condemnation. And it was something that the Old Testament prophets wrote about a ton. And what we find in the writings of Paul and the other New Testament apostles is that the day, of Lord, the day of the Lord, the ultimate day of final consummation, final blessing, the making of all things new, and the day of final judgment when all evil is finally vanquished and death finally dies, that's a day that finds its ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And what Paul's saying that's really crazy, if you get to all the places that the Corinthians are in disobedience and sin, the way that they're wilding out, the way that they're doing all kinds of stuff that's against the teachings of Jesus, what's wild is that Paul says he's totally confident that God is the one that began a good work and God's the one that will finish the work, that they will stand guiltless on the day of the Lord. And this is really beautiful. This is really powerful because all the places that we feel the gap, the gap between who we know we're called to be in Jesus and how we're currently behaving, (laughs) the gap between the kind of freedom we want from sin and the kind of experience of setbacks and disobedience that we all struggle with, the gap between the the way that we want to give our lives away and the way that we self-protect so often, 
Like that gap can get us so overwhelmed by our inadequacies and our failures and our mistakes that we can start to pull away from God instead of drawing near to God. And what Paul is saying is, hey, you know what? Like God's the one that's gonna finish the good work. He's gonna get you where you need to be. And that's powerful. And this leads to the second big idea. God is not only the prime actor, but grace. Grace is the essential orientation. Look at verse three. This is not just a greeting. This is the heartbeat of what Paul teaches in every letter. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Let's talk about those two words, grace and peace, for just a second. Uh, You might have heard the definition of grace, that it's unmerited favor. And I like that definition. I think that definition is true and good. It's simple, but it's not simplistic. But we can hear that definition and we can make it we can make it something so abstract that we're not amazed by what grace really is. Grace is the idea that even though the Corinthians are all kinds of crazy wild folks that are doing all kinds of crazy wild things, every one of them that's trusted in Jesus, Jesus has already atoned for their sin. They've been forgiven, they've been adopted, they've been justified. And all of the righteousness of Jesus, all of Jesus' perfect standing with the Father has been credited to them. And that means even though the Corinthians, they need to lean in, they need to repent, they need to mature, they need to grow, they need to fight sin. All that's true. But in this moment, at the beginning of the book, before Paul even gets to all the places that they're in disobedience, here's what he says. Grace and peace to you. The Corinthians are already standing in the sunlight of the Father's love, even before they fix the stuff that's broken in that church. And this is a really important thing because we can, we can start to think that the way that people change, the way we kick bad habits and the way that we mortify our flesh and the way that we resist temptation and the way that we stop sinning in the same ways that we were sinning yesterday is simply trying harder or working harder or being obsessed with the areas that we're blowing it in. But the message of the Bible, the message of the New Testament is this message of a grace orientation that tells us again and again the best, most powerful way to fight against sin, to experience transformation is to actually bring the parts of our life that are the most shameful, the most disobedient, the most out of step with Jesus into the presence of God the Holy Father. And to lay that stuff before our Father and to receive in the presence of our Father his delight in us because Jesus has already paid for those sins and Jesus has already given us all of his righteousness. If you want to be able to fight against sin, the way that that happens is not by taking 20 looks at your sin every day and one glance at Jesus. The way we fight against sin is realizing that we have the love of God right now as the fuel to war against the things that are trying to kill us. It's a grace orientation. It's also, it's also a peace orientation. Grace and peace are deeply connected. The idea of peace in the Old Testament is this beautiful idea of shalom or everything needed for flourishing, everything needed for beauty and for depth and for meaning. And what Paul is saying is that the grace of God and the peace of God has been given to the Corinthians in Jesus that they are experiencing now and will experience on the great day fully the complete favor of God and the complete shalom of God through the work of Jesus. Now, 
What Paul's about to say next is really baffling to me as a pastor. I struggle with it often. Because Paul's about to move from talking about grace and peace to telling the Corinthians that he thanks God for them always. And the thing that's baffling about that is that the Corinthians are a dumpster fire of a mess when it comes to local churches. Okay, true, true story. Um, my wife and I planted Frontline uh, 2005. It's been about 17 years. And there's some dark ways that I've gone to the book of 1 Corinthians, not to be like edified and grow, but sometimes I go to the book of 1 Corinthians to just like compare our church to their church and feel a little better about the dumpster fire that we are. It's like, hey man, our church is totally jacked up, but we're not the Corinthians, praise be to God. We're doing okay. Because this church is wild. Um, they, are, they are totally buying into the pride of their city. They're really arrogant. This is a church that's dividing up. They've got their favorite teachers and they're basically building teams and not loving each other. And some guys are like, I'm on team Paul. And some guys are like, well, I'm on team Apollos. Some guys are like, well, I'm on team Jesus. Forget all you suckers. They're just fighting. They're, they're devouring each other. There's Corinthian, there's Corinthian Christians. This is wild. There's Corinthian Christians that are dragging fellow church members before pagan courts that would demand worship of Caesar to sue other Christians over dumb stuff that they should have just let go. And then there's all kinds of weird stuff around sex. Like you have people that are Christians in Corinth that are teaching it's wrong for husbands and wives to have sexual intimacy in their marriage, that like you should just abstain from sex as a married couple. And then you have this whole teaching that's like, and you know what else? It's okay to have sex with prostitutes in pagan temples. Okay, that's just weird math. It's, it's weird math. There's all kinds of immorality. In fact, there's, there's a guy in the church at Corinth that has a sexual relationship with his stepmother, with his stepmother, and instead of rebuking the guy and calling the guy back to Jesus in repentance, the Corinthians are like, man, isn't it amazing that we're such a tolerant, gracious people? Isn't that a beautiful thing that he's pursuing his best life now by having an affair with his dad's wife? Okay, they're flipping out. They're neglecting the poor. So they're getting together for the Lord's Supper and wealthy members of the church, they're bringing like this lavish bread of food. They've got like prime rib and the poor people are eating like ramen noodles and the rich people aren't sharing with the poor people. The poor people are hungry and the rich people are like, ah, couldn't possibly eat another bite at church. And then you have, you have people getting together for the Lord's Supper and they're getting trashed on communion wine. Right? This is not senior frogs. <laughs> they're they're getting together and getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. And then you have Christians in the city of Corinth that are like so fanatical about the gifts of the Spirit. And by the way, we're going to get into all kinds of stuff on the gifts of the Spirit. Paul is absolutely pro-gifts of the Holy Spirit, all of them, even the ones that you think are weird. We'll get to that. But you have Christians in Corinth that are like, you know what makes a truly spiritual superior Christian? The gift of tongues. And all you guys that don't speak in tongues, you all aren't as important to Jesus as we are. And we could go on and on and on. There's people denying the resurrection of the dead. There's people that are claiming that the fullness of the kingdom has come now. There's people claiming that what you do with your body doesn't matter. Like there's just all kinds of stuff that's wrong in Corinth. But here's what Paul says. Grace and peace to you. And then he tells him in verse four, I give thanks to my God 
always for you. Man, man. A grace orientation is not constantly obsessed with what's broken and what needs to get fixed. A grace orientation leads to gratitude, worship, and hope that what God has already done is powerful and that what God is doing is powerful and what God will do is powerful. That God has already moved to save them. God is moving to sanctify them and God will move to glorify them. Paul's confidence is in God. It's about God's grace. And this leads to the last thing. The foundation of this letter is, first of all, that God's the prime mover, not all the people that are wilding out in the church and in the city, not our ability to control, not our kids, not our bosses, not the pathologies of the world and not the princes that everybody wants to follow, not politics. God is sovereignly working to do everything he wants to do in history and in the church. Grace is the essential orientation. God has already made you sons and daughters through Jesus. If you trust him, you have his favor and you have his peace. And now it's time to grow and live from that. And then finally, number three, Paul's pointing out that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the center of true spirituality. Jesus is the center of true spirituality. In these nine verses, Paul mentions Jesus by name nine times. Nine times. It's like, here's what Paul wants to talk about. Jesus. Jesus. And the reason Paul wants to talk about Jesus is one of the big debates in the Corinthian church is about who are, tr- who are truly spiritual Christians. Who are the really spiritual ones? Like I said, some people are like, well, the truly spiritual Christians are the ones that have had visions and impressive experiences. They've had dreams or the truly spiritual Christians are the ones that prophesy a lot, or the truly spiritual Christians are the ones with tongues. And other people are like, no, no, no. The truly spiritual Christians are the ones that are married but don't have sex, or they do long fast, or the truly spiritual Christians are the ones that are really good at philosophy. There's a whole debate in the Corinthian church, it seems, around true wisdom, true wisdom, And there were Christians that were saying, hey, you know what? Like all that stuff about the cross of Jesus, that stuff's really great, but we've moved to the deeper, more secret, hidden wisdom. It's more sophisticated than all that Messiah on a cross stuff. Like that's junior varsity. We've gone beyond that. We've got true wisdom. And what Paul is saying, man, in the opening of this letter is like, guys, guys, authentic spirituality, real wisdom, True Christian life is not found in certain experiences or elevating one gift above the other or in moving past the cross to more sophisticated, secret forms of wisdom and knowledge. True wisdom, true spirituality finds its beginning, middle, and end in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fullness of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the mediator between man and God. Jesus is the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. And even the structure of this book is so amazing because here's what's going to happen. Chapters 1 and 2, Paul's going to talk about the cross. The cross, which is foolishness to the world, but it's the wisdom of God. And then Paul's going to get to chapter 15 and he's going to talk about the resurrection, that the tomb is empty, that the new creation has begun in Jesus. And between the cross and the resurrection, Paul's going to talk about the way of Jesus, our ethics and our relationships and our bodies and our marriages and our singleness and our gifting and all the things that are really complicated and difficult. 
And the reason he's doing it in that approach is because Jesus truly is, he is the beginning and he is the end of what it is to be a Christian. And the way of Jesus without the person of Jesus is impossible. Paul is passionate about Christ and he wants to call the Corinthians back to loving, believing, and obeying Jesus. What I would say today, we live in a moment where there's all kinds of spiritualities and all kinds of philosophies and Man, even people that follow Jesus can get into all kinds of designer stuff, and that's what makes you truly spiritual. There's the new fad here, the new fad here. Um, there's the sort of like um, psychologizing of Christianity. There's all kinds of competing voices, and this is where the varsity Christian should live. And what Paul is saying so clearly in this book is true maturity, true spirituality is found in loving, obeying, and following Jesus. Jesus is the heartbeat of what it is to be a Christian. So I want to pray for you. Take a second. Bow your heads. Father, I'm just really thankful. I'm really thankful that uh, the message of 1 Corinthians isn't work harder, do better. God, I'm really thankful that the message of 1 Corinthians isn't I doubt if you're going to make it to the end. I'm so thankful that the message of 1 Corinthians isn't. You had a shot at being the children of God and you blew it. Who's next? God, thank you, thank you, thank you that this is a book that focuses first and foremost on you and your work in Jesus. And the grace and peace that's given to us through Jesus and the depth and maturity and true spirituality of Christ crucified and raised from the dead and learning to walk with him. And we pray as we dive into this study, as we read it and eat it and think about it, that you would help us to grow up and live from these three, these three realities. God, we pray that where the ways of OKC are pulling us away from the way of Jesus, you would help us to recalibrate. We pray, Lord Jesus, that today as we come to this meal, that you would feed us and clothe us and help us to continue on in your grace, with your help, to the, to the great day, the day of the Lord. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.